This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, Team Cardio Nerds. Dan Amander here, and we are very excited to share this next Cardio Nerds Rounds recording. Cardio Nerds Rounds are virtual rounds with world experts where we learn the latest evidence through challenging cases. This incredible series is co-chaired by master educators Dr. Karin Desai from Johns Hopkins and Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC. Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, Programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is supported with unrestricted funding from Zoll LifeFest. A huge thank you to Mitzi Applegate and Yvonne Chiveret for their top-notch production skills that make Cardinerance Rounds such an amazing success. Of course, the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardinerance without external bias. Case details are altered to protect patient health information. And with that, let's round. Karn, take it away. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, from wherever or whenever you may be joining, as I know many people will eventually be listening to this on the podcast version. My name is Karen Desai. I have just finished fellowship at the University of Maryland in Baltimore and will soon be joining the faculty at Johns Hopkins. And I am so thrilled to welcome all of you back to Cardi Nerds Rounds. Thanks to all of you that have joined throughout the year. Hopefully you found this a very fruitful and educational session to learn from truly world experts that have joined us here on Rounds. We've been able to go through many cases and really get a wonderful perspective from people that are truly at the top of their field. And today is no different. Today we'll be discussing cardiogenic shock and specifically pressure volume loops to understand the physiology of a specific cardiogenic shock case. And without further introduction, I do want to introduce our true expert today, Dr. Dan Burkoff. Dr. Burkoff is the Director of Heart Failure, Hemodynamics, and Circulatory Support at the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. As many of you probably know Dr. Burkoff, he is the creator of the Harvey Simulator, which has been an interactive application that has given a lot of providers an understanding of the fundamentals of hemodynamics. And it's truly been fundamental in my growth and understanding of hemodynamics and ability to manage patients in the cardiac ICU. Now, this was designed to educate physicians at all levels of training and to assist them in predicting the effects of different therapies. Now, Dr. Burkhoff has had extensive hands-on experience with many cardiac assist technologies, including a prior generation of direct cardiac compression devices. As well, Dr. Burkhoff is an adjunct associate professor at Columbia University and importantly, one of the best educators all across the world. So Dr. Burkhoff, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Karen, and it's really a great pleasure to be here with you. Let's get started. So this patient as a 55-year-old gentleman, has really minimal past medical history, and he presents to another hospital three days prior with chest pain, nausea, vomiting. He looked ill. Heart rates were in the 150s, blood pressure 90 over 70s with a narrow pulse pressure. Patient's tachypnic, is on room air, and immediately you get an EKG and you clearly see it's abnormal. 
AB normal, showing very large ST elevations in the inferior leads. You see this tachycardia with an incomplete right bundle branch block and PVCs included, but clearly what we're showing here on EKG is ST elevation. So the patient is taken emergently to the cath lab, and this is not the actual film. This is actually a similar image obtained from a case from the University of Michigan on our Cardio Nerds case report series. But in this patient, they're taken to the lab and they have drug-eluting stents placed to the mid-RCA, and then they're taken to the CCU for monitoring. Initially, the patient's normotensive, but in the next 24 hours, the team astutely notes that there's a new systolic murmur on examination, and it's heard throughout the procordium, it's pan-systolic. The patient's not cool to the touch, they're hypotensive, they're tachycardic, they have an elevated jugular venous pressure, and by chest x-ray examination, there's worsening pulmonary edema. So the patient's intubated. A repeat EKG is obtained, and it shows that the ST segments have been reduced by greater than 50%, and the patient is quite ill and needs to be transferred to your institution. So this is the information that you're given. And at the same time, they tell you, we did a bedside echo quickly to look at the LV function and it was normal. The RV function looked okay, is what they tell you. So basically, you get this information of a post-MI patient with a systolic murmur, hemodynamic compromise, pulmonary edema and hypoxia, and we reported that there's a normal LVEF. And as I'm going to go through the case here, a couple things that are coming to our mind, especially if you know that the angiography shows that there wasn't that much territory at risk in the myocardium. But the hemodynamic compromise is significant. And that should also be a clue that there's mechanical complication. As well, if there truly is normal systolic function that someone that's really critically ill or hemodynamically compromised should begin to be thinking about, is there a suspicion for a mechanical complication of MI? Specifically, we're thinking about ventricular septal rupture or papillary muscle rupture. And we are going to be keeping that on the top of our mind as we begin to evaluate the patient coming to our institution. The patient's echocardiogram has clearly relatively normal, if not super normal, LV ejection fraction from this parasternal long axis view that I'm showing. And on this view, I'm also showing that the RV is dilated and dysfunctional. But amongst the things we were thinking about, new systolic murmur, post-MI patient, we're looking for, is there a papillary muscle rupture with new ischemic MR or a ventricular septal defect? And on this immediate image on the left of the screen, which will be on the website, we clearly don't see that. And I'm showing the color image, and maybe what I'm showing is that there's potentially this red jet originating from the septum after you did some medial angulation of the probe that may be something of a clue that the patient is having a mechanical complication and specifically a ventricular septal defect. The patient did proceed to eventually get a TE because the suspicion of a ventricular septal rupture was high. Now, this is what I'm showing here is a four-chamber view of a TE, and amongst the things that we were thinking about, those the new systolic murmur in a post-MI patient of a, looking for a ventricular septal rupture or ischemic MR, and I'm focusing on the mitral valve here, we clearly see by color that there isn't any significant MR. And we'll, we'll make a point maybe later on that just because on examination, there's no murmur or by on a transthoracic that there isn't necessarily a significant color indicating MR doesn't necessarily exclude that there is severe MR. But for papillary muscle rupture, we don't see any morphologic changes. So then we begin focusing on this TE on the septum. And do we see any defect that would indicate that the patient had a ventricular septal rupture? And maybe we begin to see it on this four-chamber view, which I'm showing on the right of the screen here, right at the inferior basal septum, that maybe there is a defect present. But again, as I noted, there was no significant MR. The LV function is largely preserved. The RV does look dilated and severely reduced. And then we go to this transgastric view. And then we clearly see 
what's causing this patient's compromise. And what I'm showing on the transgastric view of the TE around the basal inferior septum, there is a large ventricular septal defect. It was measured at 1.8 centimeters on most views around 1.6 to 1.8 with a large systolic flow across the LV to the RV. The QPQS, the flow of the pulmonary and the pulmonary circulation to the systemic circulation was calculated by TEE to be 3.6. So that's a lot of information, but basically we have a post-MI patient with a ventricular septal rupture, large flow, and we get some hemodynamics as well. We see that the patient's QPQS by uh, invasive hemodynamics is 3, that the total cardiac output to the body is 3.4, and using the QPQS, the flow across the VSD is around 7 liters per minute. We get a CVP pressure of 19 elevated. We get a mean PA pressure of 42 elevated. And we get a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure that's significantly elevated. Now we get a mixed venous, which we'll maybe go through a little bit later, but we calculate per FLAMS formula that tells us a 61%. The lactate's four and the rest of the information's right here. So basically we have a very sick patient with a ventricular septal rupture, that's significant flow, QPQS, which is an indicator of how much flow in the pulmonary circulation to systemic, and they have an elevated lactate, not doing well, and we're asked how we're going to manage this patient. Dr. Burkhoff, how would you approach this case? I'm going to tell you right off the bat that this is a very challenging situation. First of all, there are no mechanical support devices that are specifically approved to treat acute VSDs, none have been really tested in specifically in any form of clinical trials. In fact, some devices are even contraindicated according to their FDA labeling. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. There's very limited information in the literature. So in that case, what we're going to do when there is a paucity of information in particular, we like to explore the principles of the condition and therapeutic options using our Harvey simulator in a prototypical patient. And that's what we're going to do is go through this physiology and we're going to look at the effects of different forms of mechanical support. I'd like to emphasize that because of the complexity of this situation and the extreme heterogeneity of the way patients present, my comments are going to be restricted to hemodynamics and do not constitute recommendations for care of specific patients. A couple of years ago, we did do a survey of the literature to find out what data were available about MCS devices? We found six papers with very small number of patients. The range of treatments ranged from balloon pump alone, ECMO alone, Impella alone, and Tandem Heart. So these were the data that we found. Similar to the current case, when it was reported in these particular cases, the QPQS is around three. In this particular case, it was 3.4. There is a large standard deviation. But I think that's about what the typical QPQS of these patients are. The size of the defects are between one and two centimeters. So it really results in a really substantial left to right shunting. So we're going to explore the physiology of shock and also VSD and therapeutics through the window of the pressure volume diagram. And this just shows as a reminder what the normal pressure volume loop looks like. It's basically a rectangular shape. The sides of the rectangle are the four faces of the cardiac cycle, and the valves open and close at the corners of that rectangle. So the other thing that's really critical to remember is we've got to really understand the basic principles of preload, afterload, and contractility. And first, 
thing to note is that the pressure volume loops fall within the boundaries of the end systolic and the end diastolic pressure volume relationships. Those are the relations showed at the bottom of the loop in blue and at the upper left corners of the loops in green. When you increase preload, you see that the pressure generation and the stroke volume, which is the width of the loop, all increase. That's the Starling law of the heart. When you keep preload constant and increase afterload, the pressure generation increases, but the stroke volume decreases. In both of these cases, as we've changed loading conditions, the loops still fall within those boundaries of the end systolic and end diastolic pressure volume relations. And finally, when you change contractility, that end systolic pressure volume relationship will shift either down or up and downward with a decrease in contractility, in which case you have a reduction in both pressure generation and stroke volume. So these are the basic principles that I'm not going to go through further but it is important to keep these in mind. So here we're going to just see what happens when you have an acute myocardial infarction that involves the right and the left ventricles. And here you see that both the RV and the LV, the end systolic pressure volume loops are decreasing. And as a result of that, there's a reduction in both the bullet pressure and the cardiac output. And what that results in is an activation of the battery plexus. And that causes increases in heart rate, increases in the SVR, and increases in what we refer to as the stress blood volume. That's the effective circulating volume that is due to venoconstriction. And as a result of all those factors, you could see that the loops not only have reduced pressure and flow generation, but also they are both shifted to the right. So typically with a myocardial infarction involving both ventricles, you would have elevations of the RV and the LV and diastolic pressures. And those are indicative of elevations of the central venous and pulmonary capillary wedge pressures respectively. So this is what a normal response to an infarct involving both chambers of the heart would look like. So now what happens if on top of that, you create an acute left to right shunt? So here, what you have, first of all, Importantly, there's a marked reduction in the effective LV that the afterload is seeing. So now you see the pressure generation in the LV is markedly reduced. And that is due to obviously now the LV is ejecting into the right ventricle and into the pulmonary artery. There's a marked decrease in blood pressure. And even though the width of the loop is increased, the effective forward cardiac output is markedly reduced. All of these things result in unloading of the LV. But unfortunately, this is not, in this case, a good thing. What you don't really appreciate here is that the pulmonary artery blood flow is obviously increasing due to the left to right shunting. Now, in contrast to what happens in the LV, the RV is actually loaded and there's a marked increase in the CVP. And in both ventricles, we have loss of the isovolumic periods. In the left ventricle, the would-be isovolumic periods or the volume trajectory is to decrease during a uh, contraction and relaxation. Whereas on the right side, the volumes are increasing during both the contraction and the relaxation phases instead of being isovolumic. So the shape of the loops are completely uh, distorted. Now we can also see um, what happens on the blood gases. So here we see another screen from the Harvey simulator and each box here represents the blood gases 
in a particular compartment of the circulation. So it starts on the top right with the pulmonary vein, left atrium, left ventricle, then the central aorta, the arterial system, then the venous system, the right atrium, right ventricle, and pulmonary artery through the lungs back to the pulmonary veins. And what you can see here in the yellow boxes is the flow from one box to the next. And the flow going out of the LV to the central aorta is 2.4 liters. So that's markedly reduced compared to normal. Now we have VSD flow flowing from the LV to the RV at 5.9 liters. That then combining with the venous return shows a cardiac output through the pulmonary artery of 8.2 liters. So there's your QPQS, 8.2 divided by 2.4. In this case, we've got a QPQS of 3.4. Now you'll see the mixed venous saturation. If you look at the box at the bottom left is only 59%. But if you were to sample this now from the pulmonary artery, you'd have a mixed venous saturation of 95. That's not obviously the mixed venous that is dependent. That's the mixing of the true mixed venous saturation and the left to right shunting, which is uh, the blood at this point coming out of the lungs is at 100% FiO2 in this particular example. So here you see the uh, step up from the right atrium to the right ventricle. So now we're going to just review very quickly the effect of various mechanical support. So this is balloon pumping. You see on the pressure tracing that the pressure augmentation during diastole and in the pressure volume loop, there's a slight reduction in the height of the loop, meaning there's a slight reduction in blood pressure. And that afterload reduction in pressure results in an increase in the forward flow. In this case, the forward flow is going from 2.5 to 2.8 liters. And that results in a slight decrease in the QPQS from 3.4 to 3.0. While we're obviously concerned about the QPQS, I think in this setting, the thing to really keep in mind is what is happening to the forward flow. We're trying to get the forward flow and the perfusion to the body as high as possible while keeping the wedge pressure as normal as possible. So here we do have a slight increase, but not appreciable increase in the forward cardiac output. The next device we're going to talk about is a transvalvular pump. This is now pumping blood from the left ventricle to the aorta. This results in a decrease in the filling pressure. That means also there's going to be a decrease in the wedge pressure, which is a good thing. We have a decrease in shunting. We have an increase in the mean arterial pressure. Due to the fact that we decrease the shunting, we also decrease the pulmonary pressures. And we increase the forward cardiac output here by over a liter per minute. And that also results in a reduction in the QPQS. So this is uh, a more potent form of mechanical support with a greater increase in the forward flow being up to about 3.5 liters. And this is now with a device that itself is pumping about 3.5 liters. What about pumping from the left atrium to the femoral artery? This is a tandem heart configuration. This device also is pumping around 3.5 liters. And we see here a more significant increase in the mean arterial pressure. We see a decrease in the wedge and the LVEDP. Of course, we're shunting blood away from the left ventricle. In this case, there wasn't really a significant change in the shunt flow, but we did have that significant increase in the forward flow, which is really the more important thing. The one thing that you need to be cautious about if you use this type of an approach is that when you increase the mean arterial pressure and you unload the left ventricle with this form of support, you could have the potential 
to cause the aortic valve to open less. And in these forms of support, aortic valve closure or reduced aortic valve opening could lead to stasis in the cusps and then result in potential for thrombus formation. Unlike in the setting of AMI shock without a BSD, you'd also be concerned about the potential for thrombus formation in the LV. But in this case, we don't have to be concerned about that because the LV is obviously continuing to pump blood through the VSD. So there's no stasis of blood in this case. Now we have ECMO that's pumping blood from the right atrium to the femoral artery. And also just for comparability, we're pumping at around three liters of flow. We see here in contrast to what we saw before actual increase in the amount of shunting. So the shunt flow went from 5.8 liters to 7.3 liters. And why is that? That's because one of the effects of ECMO, which is desirable for using ECMO to increase the mean arterial pressure without actually directly assisting the left ventricle in overcoming that increase in mean arterial pressure. So that every time you increase the mean arterial pressure without assisting the LV, that is going to result in an increase in the shunting. And therefore, we do have increase in the flow across the VS state. However, on the other hand, we are diverting flow away from the right ventricle because we are taking blood directly from that right atrium. And therefore, the net flow through the pulmonary artery is actually reduced. So that results in a pretty large reduction in the QPQS. But really, the most important thing, again, is not focusing on the QPQS. It's the actual forward cardiac output that we're achieving, which again here, with this form of support, we're increasing to 3.6 liters per minute, which is obviously what we're trying to do with ECMO is increase that forward flow and increasing the MAP does have a potential benefit on organ perfusion. Of course, with ECMO, you're also oxygenating the blood. So in the case that the patient is in pulmonary edema, which is very often the case, this will oxygenate the blood and improve the delivery of oxygen, the DO2. The other option is to combine devices. And common combinations include ECMO plus balloon pump or ECMO plus impella. This is showing the combination of ECMO plus impella. And in this case, you are actually having the best of both worlds, if you will. We're increasing the forward flow. We have two pumps working in parallel. We're decreasing the wedge pressure. We're decreasing the pulmonary artery pressure. And in this case, we're markedly increasing the forward flow. We're markedly decreasing the shunting fraction, and we are markedly decreasing the QPQS. In this case, now we don't have to be concerned about aortic valve closure because the impella device itself will maintain turbulence in the root of the aorta. The one thing I will say, which I didn't mention, was that per the FDA labeling, the impella is contraindicated, but there are small series showing the effects of impella support. So this is actually a nice graphical summary of what we found when we did a systematic simulation of these various approaches using our Harvey simulator. And what you see here is the VSD shunt flow, the QPQS, and the wedge pressure. Fortunately, there's no clear winner here. There are similar effects. Each one of these devices provides some improvement in the forward flow, some reduction or some variation of the shunt flow, some variable effect on the wedge pressure. 
but there's not a dramatic winner here. And that's really the bottom line here. What we know clinically is that in the end, VSD, mechanical complications, not only VSD, but mitral or papillary muscle ruptures, these are surgical mechanical problems. These require in the end, a mechanical solution. So I think that the take-home messages and putting these results into perspective, I think obviously the priorities in treating a patient with cardiogenic shock and VSD are to really primarily focus on maintaining perfusion to the body, delivery of oxygen, trying to maintain CVP and wedge as normal as possible. There are very limited data available to guide decision-making and especially when it comes to the choice of device. Different forms of MCS differ with regard to their hemodynamic effects here. Hemodynamic monitor can help customize or optimize as best as possible. Once you've chosen which device you're going to use, can help optimize its settings to achieve the hemodynamic and metabolic goals that you're looking for. As I've emphasized, no one form emerges as clearly superior to the other in terms of overall hemodynamic support. You have to think about aortic root stasis in the case of RA to FA, that's ECMO or LA to FA, which is tandem heart pumping. And other factors can certainly dictate what form of support you will choose, including the different flow potentials. Obviously with ECMO, you have um, a greater flow potential than with the other devices. And in this case, I think also local expertise with different forms of MCS will play a big role. We have to be mindful about vascular access and care of the vascular access site and distal perfusion matters as well. So that's an overview of the physiology, the pathophysiology and the hemodynamics of the different forms of support. So Karen, what happened to this patient? Dr. Burkhoff, that truly was a whirlwind overview of the pathophysiology and the options of mechanical support are in a ventricular septal rupture. So I will briefly go through what happened with this patient. Essentially, this patient was placed on a tandem heart at the outside hospital. It was an LA to aorta device. The patient was converted to ECMO. It was ECMO alone with a minimal venting strategy. And the patient was actually on high-dose inotropes initially. Maybe we can talk about the deleterious effects of that potentially. And on ECHO, it was noted that the QPQS was increasing over days, but the patient made it through it. And they had a significant volume removal with CVVH. And eventually at day 17, the patient had a pericardial patch repair of the VSD. And this graph from the European Heart Journal from Jones et al. from 2014 basically shows that the further removed that you are from the acute VSR, greater chance of survival. And that's partly reflected by survivorship by, but it's also reflected that the ability to repair when there's been a little bit of healing increases. So maybe I'll start with a question, Dr. Brickoff. The inotropes were used, and one of the options was medical management. So what is the role of inotropes in the setting of VSR leading to shock or vasopressors and vasodilators? I think the role is relatively limited because as you saw on the echo on your patient, first of all, the effective ejection fracture was high. And why is that? That is not likely because the contractility of the heart is normal. It's most likely because the, the ventricle now has an extremely low afterload. So don't forget EF is a afterload dependent index of contractility. So if you completely unload the LV, the LV is ejecting against the pulmonary pressure, which in your case, I believe the mean pressure was something like 30 or 40, very low afterload. And that is what contributes significantly to making this ventricle look like it's normal. Once you patch the VSR, take care of the ejection fraction, you're going to drop precipitously. 
and give you the true contractility of that ventricle. So the heart is contracting like gangbusters here, giving it more inotropy. It's not going to really help improve the forward cardiac output. Now, with regard to pressors, you have a similar problem based on what we talked about before. Anything that you do that increases the afterload on the left ventricle is going to just increase the left to right shunting. And therefore, even though the pressure may look higher, is likely going to reduce the forward cardiac output. So again, like within shock, like we always talk about, don't be fooled just by looking at the blood pressure. You need to think about blood pressure and perfusion. Just using pressors and inotropes here, you really have the potential to see that you may increase the blood pressure a little bit, but odds are that the lactate will either stay elevated or actually may continue to rise. So we've got to be mindful of both pressure and forward flow. So that's where maybe a little bit looking at lactate and also the true mixed venous saturation could come into play. Yeah, that's a great point, Dr. Burkhoff, and especially not just looking at that blood pressure, putting in the context what the pathophysiology is for the patient. You know, I just wanted to show this graph again from Dr. Burkhoff's paper that demonstrated what the VSD shunt flow was, the QPQS, and the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure across different mechanical circulatory support. And that pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, let's say maybe as a surrogate, we'll use it here for discussion as a surrogate of maybe flow through the PA. And you just notice that it's always elevated, as Dr. Burkhoff pointed out. And whether it's from increased left to right shunting through the VSD or increased right-sided venous return, because you have an MCS device that's returning flow to the RV, the flow is always going to be increased. And so the only way to truly reduce pulmonary capillary wedge pressure in the setting of a VSD where you have a lot of recycling of flow is that you do have to still continue to focus on the diuresis. Uh, I think that was an important aspect for our patient for why they were able to get towards day 17. I'll just make one additional point, just going back to our patient that I had presented initially, when we got quickly to the diagnosis of ventricular septal rupture for this patient, just remembering what could cause a systolic murmur post-MI. We said ventricular septal rupture, papillary muscular rupture, but even if the murmur is not present, which could happen if patients have low cardiac output or if they have a low systolic blood pressure, or in the case of ischemic MAR from papillary muscle rupture, there's very high LA pressure, or in the case of ventricular septal rupture, there's very high RV pressure or RA pressure, there's not going to be a gradient for that flow to occur, and the murmur may not be very loud. So again, reiterating, if you have a patient with hyperdynamic LV, normal LV systolic function, and in profound shock, you should really be thinking about a mechanical complication. And another thing, not necessarily with the inferior MI, another thing that can cause a systolic murmur being a dynamic LVOT obstruction. We have a question. What about the use of nitroprusside as an add-on to mechanical support? Does that have any benefit? With regard to afterload, the two things you want to keep in mind are organ perfusion and also forward cardiac output. So in principle, reducing afterload resistance will have a benefit in terms of the ability of the ILV to eject forward. But then you have to balance that with what is the blood pressure. You don't want your mean arterial pressure to go below 60, 65 in terms of organ perfusion. So it will be a balance. But in general, if you reduce SVR, that would help the forward cardiac output. And so you can reduce SVR. That will increase the forward cardiac output. And therefore, you have the potential to maintain the blood pressure. So I think with cautious monitoring, 
the use of a vasodilator can actually be beneficial. Thanks, Dr. Burkhoff. This has really been a wonderfully educational session, but I just want to make a specific plug for utilizing pressure volume loops and specifically Harvey to really understand the pathophysiology of your patients. It truly has been fundamental for me in trying to understand the complexities of cardiogenic shock. It really comes down to understanding the physiology of your specific patient, which Harvey truly helps you do. With that, Dr. Burkhoff, I want to thank you for joining us, taking us through that whirlwind tour. And we really, really appreciate you joining us here on Rounds. Thanks for having me very much. And I will again thank our audience for joining. And until next time, we will see you back on Cardio Nerds Rounds.